Welcome to Brave Space Live. I'm Tyshell. I'm a diversity, equity, and inclusion. I have to I have to read that every single time because I forget the title. I'm a diversity, <laughs> equity, inclusion practitioner and learning consultant. It is a bit this, of a mouthful. I don't blame you. <laughs> I mean, it's not as bad as a social what's your title again? Social ethicist. No one can say it, including myself. I'm an also I'm an I'm an, I'm an also an author. There we go. We got oh, it. she's an author. I'm an author. I, I bought her book. I have it. So you did. So you know. I did. That meant so much to me. That was when we barely knew each other, and you're like, I'm I gonna buy your book, and I was like, okay. I Thank did. you. And one of my friends just wrote a children's book, and I bought that too on Amazon. You're so supportive. I just I try. <laughs> especially especially when it's under twenty dollars i'm really supportive yeah. <laughs> so, hey <laughs> before we get we're in this conversation already so before we go too far into that conversation welcome 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 back uh so today we'll be talking about the kind of the co-opting of dr martin luther king and what that looks like um in in today's you know i guess lexicon and how that conversation has been happening especially in places where we see a lot of activism, which I guess social media is one of those places. It's, we have to add social media activism as a part of that. And we hear uh, Dr. King come up a lot. So I know, um, Mel, you were gonna tell us a little bit of a story about something you learned while you were in school about Dr. King, I guess. Yeah, so I was taking a, a class on black spirituality in the US from a wonderful queer feminist black theologian named Dr. Pamela Lidesey. Um, and she, one of the first things we talked about in the class is how black people, according to her, don't talk about MLK. They talk about, they talk about Dr. King. Is that your experience, Taishal? I would say, yeah. I mean, I grew up near MLK Boulevard, so I think it's a little bit different, but definitely yeah. when I'm referencing him, I talk, I try to give him his full credence and name and not just calling him by an acronym. Yeah, I a lot of white people I hear say MLK. They, it's very rare for me to hear white people say Dr. King, and I had never thought about that before. It's very interesting to me to think, even in the way we refer to this person. Uh, kind of shows some underlying assumptions and possibly beliefs about his legacy. So this is going to be an awesome conversation. I'm really I looking forward to it. So even off, of, you know, shooting off of that, one of the things I think is interesting is you can kind of say that MLK and Dr. King are two different people to two different groups of people. Ah, that's right. Insightful. So like yeah. MLK is not necessarily Dr. Martin Luther King and his legacy. Uh, MLK is what people have made him now. I would yeah, say. he's like the Disneyland version. Yeah, that's yeah, it's bad. Yeah, right. So, well, actually, I'm, I found a political cartoon that like embodies yeah, this perfectly. Yeah, yeah. Let me show oh, it here. So, awesome. I'm going to read it for it? you if you can't see this. Anyone who's watching, so over here on the left-handed side of the screen, we have Dr. King, 1967, saying there are literally two Americas. One America is overflowing with. The milk of prosperity, but there is another America. In this America, people are poor by the millions. They find themselves perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. And then over on the right side of the screen, there's a white couple and the guy saying to the woman, I prefer the guy who talks about dreams and stuff. Uh, it, it, it does like completely summarize this conversation. It hits, right? That yeah, hit. Like does. white folks really like to think about MLK, but not Dr. King and everything he fought for, including economic justice was a big part of what he talked about. So we're going to get into that today. You know what? Well, you know what image came to my mind, and this is my own an image that popped into my head. So not like a, an actual image out there. It's kind of like whittling a tree down to a toothpick. Like, I think that's what, I, that's kind of what I hear when people talk about 
the only time they talk about MLK, the two things, or Dr. Martin Luther King, the two things that they usually say are the I have a dream speech, content of the character, not color of your skin, Mm -hmm. And then they talk about nonviolence. Those are the only two ways he usually yeah. comes up for people, not some of the other things. So, and, there, and off, people oh, yeah. usually talk about the nonviolence when there's like property destruction and they are opposing like leftist progress, yeah. right? Yeah, it's, it's like used as a weapon, kind of. Anyway, it, it is, and that's kind yeah. of I mean, that's kind of where I wanted to start it. Just this whole thought process of like romanticizing the civil rights era. So I kind of wanted to start with when we talk about. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. specifically because his junior. father and his son, he, he's a, there's, a, there's a, a senior, junior, and a third. Um, and one of the things that he, that comes up a lot is when we, when we talk about civil rights, we kind of romanticize it as this time gone by, this thing that happened, this, uh, this era where things were bad and they're no longer bad. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's so so how the story usually goes is like there was racism there. No, there was slavery. And then there and then after slavery, there was racism. And then Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther, well, people would say MLK did a speech on Washington yep. and then racism. It, it was magic. The, end. the, Disney, the Disneyland. End. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's our whole conversation today. You, no, Goodbye. Thanks but for it, listening. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's kind of what what happens. They t people tend to romanticize mm -hmm. the civil rights era. And and the other thing that I that I was thinking of when we talk about civil rights, often we talk about when you look up civil rights era uh, photos, they're often in black and white, yep. which kind of gives you the notion that they were hundreds of years ago. Mm -hmm. But really, like uh, the the year that the the civil rights pass act passed. That was the year my mother was born. So it's they had not... colorful photography. They had options. <laughs> they, right, they did, color. but they just didn't show it because it makes it seem as if it was so long ago. Right. And just this thought that like that's where racism ended, and and you know you hear kind of that thought process. So I wanted to talk a little, just a little bit about um, Dr. Martin Luther King's. Um, his, 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 I have a dream speech, right? That's the mm -hmm. one, that's the famous one. I, you know, we want, I want my children to be known for the color, for not for the color of their skin, but the content of their character so they can play with little white boys and little black boys can play together, right? Like that's the speech. Yeah. We don't, not all of the other speeches, not all of the other ideology that he put behind it. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But one of the things I, I thought would be interesting to talk about is Martin Luther King was chosen. And I say that mm. not in like a chose just a, just a chosen by God. I, I don't know him and God's conversation, the, the ones that they're probably having <laughs> right been. now, whatever. We don't know. But I say he's chosen much like AOC was chosen, much like, um, and this is, goes into a little bit of political sphere, much like um, Barack Obama was chosen. And I say that because I want people to know that there were people behind Martin Luther King um, some would say more radical than Martin Luther King, but they chose him. They chose him because he was a 15 year old high school graduate going into Morehouse College. He was a Christian. He Hold on. was- Sorry to interrupt. He was 15? Hold yeah, on. He was about 15 or 16 when he started college, I believe. Somebody, I'm gonna have to wow. fact, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna have to fact check myself, but I believe he was about 15 or but 16. But not when he started being a figurehead for the civil rights movement. No, 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 no. But when he started when. college. When gotcha. he started college. So, so he, he was started, young for his. He was grade. really young, really smart. He was mm -hmm. a Baptist Christian. He was brought up in the church. He was a preacher. Yep. Um, so they chose him because he was unscathed. Hmm. He was not, he was easy to, to engage with. He, he, you know, got all the Christians on board. So if you were a Christian in your, uh, he, you could relate to him. He was smart. So you couldn't call him like dumb. You couldn't call him a vagrant, like things like that. So they chose him as hmm. a figurehead, much like, and people don't know this either. They chose, well, she chose cause she was working herself, but Rosa Parks, did what she did, not just because she was having the day that she had and she didn't want to move, that was part of it, but because Claudette Colvin, a few months before, was a 15 year, a black 15 year old pregnant girl who did the same thing and was arrested. So they chose an older woman who was working um, with the SCLC or SNCC is the two um, groups. 
um, they that worked so that you know they had a person that was respectable and that because that's you know that's leading into like the respectability politics yeah um, that we'll talk about a little bit yeah Mm -hmm. so they they chose these people to be shown or to be those figureheads because they were unscathed they were neat they were sanitary Mm. right and and it's that's this it goes into this thought process that for people of color to be or for black people specifically to be um in the public eye we have to be completely devoid of any scandal any problems and i'm not I, I, right like you we have to yeah. be perfect to be hmm. equal right so when people say obama was a great uh speaker he was harvard he was married to this one woman unlike many other presidents some i'm not gonna say their names <laughs> but he was you know a lawyer he was a community man i'm not even gonna say he was the greatest a great president that's i mean you know that's up for debate but he was unscandled right and yeah. that's he in, they were chosen in the same way right yeah. so this is how they they link those two histories um Martin walked or marched so that Barack could run is kind of the part of the slogan that came out in 2008. So I thought that was interesting to to share on on just that part of it. So I'd, I'd love yeah. to hear your some of your thoughts on like this whitewashing of or this romanticizing of the civil rights era. <clears throat> Gosh, I have so many thoughts. So we talked about this when we were planning the show because we had an earlier episode about <clears throat> civility and how civility is often weaponized to keep people of color in quote unquote their place right to to say that you only and i think this really ties back into what you were saying taisha like that this pressure to to earn equality to earn respect to be guilty until proven to be innocent sorry guilt no guilty until proven innocent like you have to prove yourself constantly and i think civility really functions that way to like force people into these little boxes that you have to comply with and 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 fit in with before you will earn respect respect that should be granted to you just by basis of being a human um and we were talking about mem i mean i was thinking about selective memory how we select white people in particular really like to pick and choose what memories we celebrate of dr king and honestly get like social cookies for those happy i have a dream memories while not being held accountable for ignoring all the other stuff you know like i remember when um the floyd protests happened last summer right and we'll probably talk about that quite a bit this episode um you know bless their hearts i guess but i have you know white conservative and moderate friends and you know and i i'll put myself in this bucket to an extent i have a lot of privilege i have some you know i come out of that world you know so i'm not trying to point fingers without pointing some at myself but you know people posting martin luther king jr dr king dr king jr quotes on facebook or whatever and getting applause for being you know not racist because they posted this stuff um so like reaping the benefits of that attention and those accolades from other white people because you stand with dr king but not really doing anything real with that information and ignoring all the other stuff, ignoring calls for economic inequality or adjusting police brutality, uh, addressing police brutality and stuff like that. So yeah, selective memory, I guess is the phrase that came to mind most during the planning of this episode. So yeah, so one of those things that kind of really harkens back for me is this, this thought that, uh, and I think when people, when people use uh, Dr. King's words, what they're often doing is is watering it down to just one thing this that whittling down to that one toothpick for that one use when there's Mm -hmm. a whole tree full of things that you could um learn about the things that he said and i think you know it's often chosen that i have a dream speech because it mentions white people right like the mention of white people in a positive light is there yeah white people really like that 
They, oh my God, they love it. really like, like attention. Salivating over not by the color of my skin, but the content of my character. I've heard people say that weaponized oh, against other people. And they're like, mm-hmm. what do you mean? You, you're, if you're talking about my skin color, then you're racist. And it's like, <laughs> girl, like, okay. Way so to run straight just, to the point and still miss it. <laughs> exactly. Like, just like it smacked you in the face and you're like, Nope, I don't, no, I can't. And it is, and it's one of those things that, like, I just, he stood out there. And and I say that, you know, when we talk about, when we were talking about this as well, when we were talking about Dr. King and why he was chosen, nonviolence, you know, his tactic in his marching, his protest, his tactic for protest was chosen. He chose it methodically. Right, and he chose it because he was a member of a of clergy. He was a, he was a, a church going man, a Christian, and that he knew if when they had gotten beaten up by the police, dogs sicked on them. When and and you can watch this if you've not if you've not watched Selma, please with uh, David Oyelowo, please go watch it. The song Glory makes me cry every time I hear it. Um, with John Legend in common, it is a beautiful song. There's so many people in that movie. When you watch it, dogs being sick don't. And, and so many of the people in this, uh, in the march, in the in the fight for justice and civil rights, were like 19, 20, 21, that kind of age. Um, so when they're fighting and they're doing all of these things, and it started to be televised because it wasn't that long ago, so it's not like before TVs existed. He chose nonviolence as a tactic because because he was a clergyman, because he used a lot of church members with. Um, SNCC and I can't and I have to I have to look up the the I know SNCC but I can't remember the name off the top of my head what the acronym stands for um and SELC Southern Poverty Law Center something like that um he chose it because when they were getting beaten and they were engaged and they were marching and things like that he knew that people were going to be watching and it was his call to other clergy members um, Christian, um, Muslim, specifically really priestly people, white people who, as they marched through the streets and things were being thrown at them and, and hoses were being turned on them and dogs were being sicked on them, that people couldn't ignore it because they were watching people nonviolently engaging, right? That's the mm-hmm. reason that they chose it. That's yeah. the reason, that's the only, that's the reason, the tactic that they chose but he also then said something like, you know, uh, and I think we have a quote about um, the riots are the language of the unheard. Yeah, I want to get into that in a minute. But Absolutely. Yeah. So, so this idea about? of nonviolent resistance is so interesting. Um, so the way it was taught to me is that um, coming out of a, this idea, so... Uh, there's a Bible verse in Romans that says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And this idea from like a theological perspective, I'm a seminary graduate, so I have, of course, I'm going to talk about this because I went to Dr. King's alma mater. I graduated from Boston University also. So there's a really cool legacy of Dr. King's work there, which is, and it was an amazing place to study. Um, so there's an idea that, you know, that that great kindness and great love overcomes evil, which sounds like a comic book until, like you said, Tyshell, you put it in real life and you see the the sacrifice, the bodily autonomy, the, the safety, the time, the energy, the resource, the mental health sacrifice that goes into how much it takes to overcome evil with love. Like that is not at all a romantic picture. So I think the way it was taught to me is the idea was that the... Um, to be so kind and so respectable and so upstanding that if your enemy does anything to hurt you, they expose their own shame. Yep. Yep. Right. And this goes back to our conversation with Rebecca Larson about, about the shame of white supremacy and like the fact that white America really hasn't faced it. So when it is exposed or rather when it exposes itself by rearing its ugly head and then it gets televised, it just makes people look foolish and cruel. So, um, so it was really not only courageous, but it, it seemed like very much a, a risk that these organizers took in using it as a tactic, um, anticipating that these racist white people would expose themselves, right? right? Like would make themselves look foolish in the face of patience and love and, and whatnot. But the sacrifice that involved is just immense. 
it, it is, and it's 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 really interesting to me. And I, and I would actually maybe not necessarily uh, use the term love because some of it, not everybody who marched with Dr. King was like, I love America, I love, but they wanted rights and they knew that if right. they didn't, if they, <clears throat> because it wasn't just about um, loving your enemy through through the racism, through the experience. It was also about uh, the, the tactic being used is that if we got violent, they we're giving them a reason to kill us, right? Yeah. And when you, if I, if you turn on your TV and you're at home with your family and you see us walking down the street and you see people throwing things at us, um, turning hoses on us, beating us with billy clubs, it's going to compel you, right? But if you see us fighting back, you have a cause to say, well, they were fighting back. I'm going to turn off the TV, much like we see in, well, they were burning down buildings, so they should get killed by the police. I don't know, like how how, the, how people even equate them, but they do. Yeah. Well, because you hear people say that constantly, like, well, they shouldn't be burning down cities, right? Yeah. They shouldn't be burning down buildings as if buildings are as important as people. Yes. And, and, one of the before we go, kind of transition a little bit in talking about riots, one of the things that it, it brings up for me in thinking about like Colin Kaepernick, right? It was a that was a specifically peaceful protest, but it was a, a nuisance to people. Oh, it made people so mad. I've never seen white people that mad about anything than a black man just choosing to kneel. That's all he's been doing, and people freaked out. I will say, I recently had a conversation with somebody about um, someone was bringing up, you know, um, Trump flags and things like that, and I was, I was, you know, presenting to a group, and this group was saying, uh, you know, when I go into a neighborhood and I see Trump flags, like I don't feel welcome. We're talking about like. A, microaggressions and and I said some people some black people feel that way about the American flag and this one woman was like I what and I was like mm. well I'm not saying that we want to feel that way mm -mm. but if I walk into a neighborhood me I'm, I'm only gonna speak for me and a lot of us but me and say if I walk into a neighborhood and every house has an American flag I'm like I don't think I'm supposed to be here. I don't think I feel safe here. I don't think I want to be here. And I don't yeah. want to feel mm. like that under this flag, right? I'm also not a person who like, I stopped pledging allegiance to the flag in second grade because it just was like, feels a little indoctrinating. But um, I still believe in the ideas, ideals and want to believe in the ideals of America. But am I, you know, and I say that having a father who was a veteran, a grandfather who's a veteran, other people in my family who are veterans as well. My grandfather, when he was buried, was buried with an American flag because he was a veteran. Um, but my but my father also left the army because he had a commanding officer that treated him poorly because he was black. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but one of those things is that, you know, just thinking about what what it means and, and what what is conveyed when people share certain things. So I think about that. People felt like, and he, and he, you know, Colin Kaepernick went to a veteran, and instead of sitting out, he knelt. And it's like, okay, yeah, but that he, was he a got a to do that from a veteran. From like, I right. think a Purple Heart veteran was like, right, because that's when they kneel, they would kneel in sorrow. Yeah. Um, at grave sites. So yeah. that's why he had that conversation. But it was a nuisance to people, even though it was. So it's like, if you don't want us to kneel, how? What? How? else should we protest and it's like right. quietly so I don't have to hear it unless I want to that yeah that kind of thing and I and I think about that and how that what that shows to us now like okay so if I did what Martin did would we still have that same result also forgetting some of the other legacy of him but I, I'll, I'll I know we were going to talk so, a little bit about well Ms. I want to go back to this stuff. I'm really glad yeah. you said that thing about love because I want to clarify it and I'm so glad you said that. I want to clarify that I don't think it should be anyone's expectation to like love people who are trying to kill you. I mean, unless that's your like religious conviction, but I don't think it's anyone, it's my place or anyone's place to tell you, you know, if you're a person of color, you have to love racists and show them love. I think the idea is more like to be an embodiment of love in the way that humans mm -hmm. ought to treat each other, to model that, to show that, right? Would you agree with that more? That's probably a better I, explanation of it. it. Yes, I, I do. Because, I mean, there are people out there who want to love white people out of racism. And, and I mean, I, it's not as if I don't embody that when I have white friends and things like that. But it's not my job. 
right? It's not mm-hmm. the job of, but there, I mean, there's a, um, a for, uh, he's a musician who, his name's David somebody, but he goes around and he, you know, has gotten KKK members to like denounce the KKK, leave the yeah. KKK because he has conversations with them and loves them and all of that. That's his ministry. That's not my ministry. Like I'm yeah. not about to spend my life having those. He also has a, the luxury of being able to do those things. Whereas, you know, he's his own boss and things like that. So he's not, you know, going to work and somebody else telling him what to do. Right. Yeah. Just different things like that. So I think it, it, it's an, it's an interesting, it, it's hard, but I, and I, and I do think, I mean, I love people in general. I'm not saying that, um, uh, it, it, I, you shouldn't love people, but it, it can't be somebody's job. But I think being the embodiment of who of who you want to be. But I think that when people use love, often the, for for Dr. Martin Luther King's, um, I'm going to shorten it and call him Dr. King for Dr. King's vision. It's like absolve when they say love, they they want you to absolve them of any wrongdoing they even feel. Yes, yes, that's exactly. the that's the that's Just the way that me. they show love. Yeah, let's just reconcile and forgive each other right. and it'll be fine. And, and not even not fixed. and I would say even past forgiveness. Don't even look at anything that I've done wrong. You don't even have mm. to forgive me because I've done nothing wrong because oh. I love you, you love me, and we're the same in a very yeah. Barney sort of way, which is <laughs> kind of ridiculous. And that's what came that of course that came to my mind. But that is it, it's yeah. a it's a ridiculous notion. Well, so I mean, this going back to Dr. King, though, this is so interesting because even if you have like a quote unquote perfect movement, right? You try to embody love, you try to mod- be a model citizen, you try to do nothing wrong, you try to be nonviolent, you try to stage sit ins instead of, sh- instead of punch people in the face, right? You try to take the knee instead of, instead of stabbing, right? Um, this is what happens. So in Dr. King's right. day, he was thoroughly hated even by self-proclaimed progressive white people this is a really interesting story that i found so there is a cartoonist political cartoonist named charles brooks who had to at one point have an fbi security detail because he was making fun of kkk members in his political cartoons so dude was ballsy as far as like trying to take on the overt racists. then he decided to attack dr king and I'm showing a political cartoon here. Um, so the it's Dr. King talking to a reporter and surrounding him is just vehicles on fire, buildings on fire. There's a man laying down in the street unconscious. Everything's broken. There's bricks in the street talking to a reporter. And then the, the caption is, I plan to lead another nonviolent march tomorrow, Dr. King is saying. Now, this is where it gets really interesting because... After Dr. King's death, they found this particular cartoon that had been written on by Charles Brooks, the cartoonist. So all, if you can see the video right now, all of the handwriting on top of this cartoon is from the cartoonist himself. So he wrote to Dr. King, and this is what he wrote to him. How can you, a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, be such a deceitful hypocrite? You're not fooling anyone but yourself in your illegible, nauseating talk about nonviolence. And then you demand a program to overcome poverty and untold amounts of high living all over the globe to feed your own egoism. So Dr. King was completely attacked even by white people who should have supported his cause because his nonviolence, uh, you know, there, there, there was there was after there were consequences of the nonviolence that were unintended. Right. And then he was blamed for that and then called an egomaniac. And so it's like, who this guy can't win. There's no, there's no reality where he's going to make white America happy with him for speaking the truth. It's interesting because when we talk about romanticizing the civil rights or even romanticizing Dr. King, we can do that in 20, in the two thousands, the, even the nineties, because we don't live in the times that he lived in, even though some of our parents and many of our grandparents did, right? He was followed and and um, and traced by the FBI. Yep. Called the enemy by I think Hoover um, or whoever at J Edgar Hoover when he was running the FBI. Mm-hmm. He was jailed. This is how we get letters from a Birmingham jail, and he was ultimately assassinated. 
-hmm. And there's speculation that it was not necessarily by just some rogue racist, that it was actually the government um, planting that person. I think his widow said that for... Right, so that has been been some speculation that's been out there for quite some time. So when we talk about Martin Luther King or Dr. Martin Luther King, Dr. King's legacy, we can't just be talking about how he made this one speech on Washington, he went to a hotel, someone, some rogue racist killed him and that, and every, the end racism is over because he, because he had things that happened after that, but he was detailed by the FBI. He was, he was was jailed. He was right. So we're not, we, we, people want to leave out all of those other things and just go straight to this one speech. Right. So it's, it's, it's so, it's so nauseating to, and I'm going to use that word that the, the cartoonists use. It's so nauseating to people of color and activists, black people and and activists, when we hear his words being co-opted or used as a weapon now against us or Mm. against people who want more than just, um, to play with white boys and girls. Right. Yeah for people to play together. Um, so I think it's, it's, man, it is that, that selective memory that you talk of. Selective memory. Yeah. And one of the biggest things that's been erased from the way we teach Dr. King is his calls for economic justice, because he understood before we had the term systemic racism, before we had the term intersectionality, he understood that we're never going to end racism in this country until we end poverty. Like the two are totally linked. And he talked about poverty and economic justice all the time. In fact, I've got some quotes. If you want to, maybe you want to read this one, Taishal. Sure. Um, I can't read the top. I see the, can you read the first line for me? We must rapidly begin the shift from a thing oriented society to a person-oriented society when machines and computers profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people the giant triples or racism are or racism materialism and militarism are incapable of being conquered a true revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth Right. So really looking at all three materialism and, and racism and the militant overly militarized took on the military industrial complex before we had that term before we, had, you know, he, he understood how interlinked our society is and that racism is not just, you know, it's not just people saying slurs. It really lives in these systems of our society and it lives in the values that we hold as a people. And we need a revolution of values as much as we need a revolution of you know, just not saying certain words or changing laws. So, um, so I think it's so interesting too, because one, one of the things that we, we have to talk about is we have to talk about wealth inequality because he talked about that as well. Yeah. Right. So he talked often about, um, the, wealth the, the, the racial wealth gap and yep. being in how we need to, because if, I mean, I guess he would be, uh, considered a socialist in today's, you know, because he talked about wealth redistribution. Mm-hmm. Right, which people did not love, and and yeah. giving to the poor and and de- redistributing wealth, and it's so funny. I was actually just looking at a study the other day and talking about how people see our racial wealth stratification as like the top forty percent have money when it's really like this top one percent have all of this money, and they see it. We think it's more distributed than it is, and it isn't. And no. then how we want it to be is also very different from how it actually is. In that the the bottom. I think 40% have like almost none of the wealth. Um, so he was for wealth redistribution. So people, when people talk about Martin Luther King, I'm like, okay, but you know, you, you like that speech, but what about that wealth redistribution he was talking about, girl? <laughs> okay, girl. Yeah. And now we're, you know, we're 60 years after, you know, his death, his assassination. Um, and our wealth inequality is worse than it was during his time there was a study done in boston a couple of years ago that just sent shock waves throughout active a lot of activist communities that work on economic justice so there, the study uh looked at the average I, I can pull it up actually here i've got the chart so they looked at the net worth of households in greater boston the average white 
family, the average white household in greater, the Boston area, had about $250,000 of net worth. We're talking, you know, IRA, like Roth IRA accounts, retirement. We're talking about home ownership, car ownership, et cetera. Okay. $250,000 average. The average black family in greater Boston had eight, not 8,000, not 800,000, eight dollars eight dollars of assets so we're talking astronomical wealth gap just right. ridiculous and and if if there's no generational wealth and families can't build throughout time you know for their children and grandchildren and build that wealth up so that those wealth gaps get worse over time because that generational wealth can never accrue it's just so interesting when we talk about this this whole i mean and there there's like so many i can think of so many black sayings just for that eight dollars right so you know black people will say things like well you don't even i don't even, i'm so broke i don't even have two nickels to rub together right <laughs> to create mm. a spark and a fire um to make heat so it, it's so it's so interesting and it's i remember being in statistics class and seeing um a chart much like this and i remember my white young white professor pretty liberal guy say tesha why do you why do you uh, look so sad right now and i was like well you just told me I'm never going to have any money. I may die young, all of these things. And he was like, I didn't think about it like that. I was like, because you don't have to, hmm. right? So just even seeing that is like greatly depressing, I would say. Yeah. And, and it's so interesting because when we're talking about this wealth redistribution, people really get scared when we're talking about, um, you know, taxing, you know, the 1%. And most people think that they, you know, are closer to the 1% than they actually are. But as it widens, and we talk about 2020 and 2021, having it widen even further, then we're missing some of these things, right? It's getting larger and not smaller, right? You, I remember seeing that um, chart that you showed, um, and it was more like $12 or $250. And seeing $8 is like wild, wild. Yeah. Just so Dr. King criticized capitalism. He criticized poverty. He criticized, um, he, he suggested that we need a guaranteed income because he understood that until we have this economic equality and, and material equality, we can't truly get rid of these, um, these, the, the system of racism in our, we can't move beyond it, right? We're never going to be able to erase the past, but we're never gonna be able to move beyond it. And totally that it's it's really depressing and it, again we're not suggesting there aren't wealthy black people or poor white people the the story of these numbers is that these this is a law of averages that tells a larger story of of how things are kind of across the board not a rule for everybody but it paints a, a larger picture right in boston is a really wealthy community for wealthy white folks like there certainly are um, you know, communities where, where rural poverty is, is a lot of white people and things like that. So please don't misunderstand us. We're not trying to say that all white people are rich or, you know, whatever. I mean, certainly it's, if we're talking about wealth redistribution, we should also be talking about 60, I think it's 64 or 66% of the people on welfare are white people. So right. when we're talking about this, we're not talking about redistributing, taking money from white people and giving it to black people. We're talking right. about the 1% to the rest, to literally the rest of the 99%. Right. And I'm not even suggesting at this point socialism, I'm talking about redistributing wealth for, for what people have actually earned, right? right? So when we're talking about that, we wanna reallocate. And it's funny because I always tell people like when you think of, uh, you know, they, they say um, there's an article that that kind of amalgamates who the wealth, who welfare recipients are called the, the welfare queen. And it talked about this one specific woman who was like cheating the system. And she and it, technically her her she was racially ambiguous because she might have been biracial, but they show her as a, a neck popping gum snapping rollers in her hair black woman and that's people's idea of what a welfare queen is and thinking that all people who all black people who live in inner cities are on welfare um but 66 percent of the people on welfare are white right when we talk about we redistribution of wealth when we talk about white supremacy culture that also talks about poor white people because there are yeah. many many poor white people and when we're talking about white supremacy culture, it's going to leave out those folks as well, 
right? But what right. it does is kind of stratify um, the wealthy one, white white one wealthy percent. There are there are like you said, there are rich black people, not as many as there are white. Um, and it kind of says to them, you can be like me because we also have the same color of skin. When, but that's just a tactic so that you're not focused on the fact that you should be banding together to try and get wealth redistributed. Exactly. I, I wanted to at least say that because I think it's so interesting. We're not saying that there are no poor white people. There are many poor white people, many white people without health care, running water, um, uh, who live in, in really rural, not just rural, but even in cities, but rural places in cities, all kinds of places. And that leaves them out as well. Yeah. Um, so when we're talking about wealth redistribution, when, when, when we reach to the people who are being most economically disadvantaged and from like a chart like that shows it's, you know, it may be black people, but that should also lift up white people as well. So that, that's, yeah. I think that's, a, it, I, I always want to say that, like, I'm not saying that we should give money to black people and not poor white people either, but we also have to address racism in that cause because that's, it's tearing all poor people apart. Well, and what it does, what that racism does is perpetuate this idea that white, that poor white people have to complete, compete with black folks for resources. Right. Instead of focusing on the wealthy, greedy people who have taken and siphoned off all of our money and not paid their fair share into back into our society. Right. So it, it misdirects. Yeah the problem. So, so one of the things I wanted to go back to, too, when we're talking about specifically about Dr. King's message, um, we have to talk about his letters from a Birmingham jail and how he talked about, uh, white moderates. And I know we had, a mm -hmm. quote, um, mm -hmm. you can pull that up. Yeah, go for um, it. So it has been gravely, I have been gravely disappointed with a white moderate. Hold on. Let me so I can see this a little bit better. The Negro's great stumbling block is his stride toward freedom is not the Ku Klux Klux Klanner, um, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than justice. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. And this is from letters from a Birmingham jail. Mm -hmm. I could not agree more. I, I heard somebody recently on social media say that the reason that racism exists, and I'm not, I, this is what I heard and it, it, it hearkened me back to that quote. Um, the reason that racism exists is uh, nice white people because you know, it's, they're not fighting hard enough because they're just happy to be in proximity to be in relationship with, but they're not fighting against the system of uh, racism, uh, sexism, misogyny, things like that. And, and it, it just remind it was a, it was a 2021 version of, um, that quote from letters from a Birmingham jail, which is a really interesting quote. And I think people leave out so many of the other things that he said, so many of his ideologies to sanitize him and to sanitize people into not fighting hard or to not addressing racism head on. And it, it's, it's one of the things that saddens me the most and frust and also frustrates me the most, as he said, um, because if you are my friend and you are silent, this is where we get allyship, but we also have to talk about performative allyship and that you are kind of like, well, the people, I mean, they mean well, and you know, my family and it's like, no, but this is still a problem, right? When we're saying, so we're sanitizing, um, his words and, and the white moderate, um, which is who's in office right now <laughs> is, is a big problem, right? You know, we're not doing as much as we could be doing. So that's, I wanted to at least share that because that's one of the things that frustrates me very greatly. Yeah. And, and going back to your analogy, the toothpick instead of the whole tree, shallow understanding from people of goodwill. So people who say they mean well, but are only willing to look at the toothpick that's more frustrating and more disappointing to someone like Dr. King and so, to someone like you, Tashel, than someone who, than to someone, than from someone who has malicious intent and refuses to understand. Right, because it's, I know where they stand. Right, right. And they don't pretend to support you and then give up when it gets a little bit uncomfy. <laughs> Un I love that saying, uncomfy. uncomfy. Yes. Right. Yeah, it, it, it is, is exactly that. And so, I heard uh, this a lot during the Floyd riots, if I can jump into. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, I've heard this a lot from white moderates and white conservatives. Oh, well, since, you know, Black Lives Matter people uh, allegedly burned down buildings, they lost their credibility and we not supporting that 
cause anymore. They are, you know, and then that got transmuted by conservative media into BLM is a terrorist organization, which is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Um, but, you know, in my argument back was, even if they didn't burn buildings, you wouldn't be in support of this because it makes you uncomfortable. Even if this was a, you know, and in this day and age, we have so much media sensationalist noise that it doesn't, it didn't even matter that 95% of these protests were totally peaceful. It didn't matter that millions of people around the country and the world marched for this. We still didn't get legislation that did a thing to address the problem that communities of color have been facing for 60 years. That, but they painted longer. some streets. They painted some streets. That they painted some streets. They renamed a square, you know, oh gosh, you know, so they're, and, and this is what I had a long conversation with with family member about this because they kept going to back to the fact, well, why are they, you know, why are they looting and they, they, they looting and burning buildings? And I was like, I was like, you know what it should disturb you more than a destruction of property is people losing hope. That's what you're seeing right now is people losing hope. Mm -hmm. That because is because Martin Luther King said riots are the language of the unheard. Thank you. Segway. I'm going to be right back. My dog is like chewing a bone right behind my ear. And it's, this conversation is too important. <laughs> no, so, so I, I'm going to yeah, close I'll, the door. I'll be right back. So I'll jump in. And one of the things that I think is really interesting here, um, one of the things and we'll kind of transition into this is this thought process that when the civil rights, uh, when civil rights act happened, racism ended, right? I hear this so, so much on when we're talking about how people are emboldened to think that because the civil rights act of 1964 happened then racism must have ended at that point like th that yeah. was it as that story i was telling earlier um some some one that one last racist shot martin luther king assassinated martin luther king and racism ended and one of the things that i hear on social media so much it is these these arguments that you know because you know if you if you're on TikTok, uh, you'll see people doing live debates and one of the things that happens they say well there and I hear this a lot from folks they'll say well there there are no racist laws on the books right now there aren't any laws that say black people can't do this black people can't do that and it's actually not true there are tons of racist laws still in the books but <laughs> but to right. your greater Absolutely. point please continue there still are yes <laughs> right so but what they yeah. are pointing to are things like um the end of segregation um, yeah. But when we talk about the end of segregation, we're talking about the end of segregation, what they say de jure, as in by, by court, by law, and not de facto. So that kind of leads into something like redlining. So redlining, black people couldn't live in this area. This is how, if you live in a suburb, it was created specifically to keep out people of color um, in redistricting. If you haven't, read The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. It's a fantastic book that goes over um, redlining and uh properties um lines being drawn in in so many different places they talk about st louis they talk about philadelphia they talk about boston they talk about he talks about so many different places right so we're talking there no no you can't say that a black person can't live here right you can't say that black people can't live in a neighborhood but how many neighborhoods are homogeneously white and how many ghettos are homogeneously people of color, right? And they want to call them things like ethnic enclaves. I will say that whole de facto de jure, I have never been told I couldn't live anywhere, but I hold, I, ha, I spoke to a man on the phone as I was apartment hunting years ago, um, probably five or six years ago. And he was like, oh sure, come by and see the property. I showed up. I, actually, my, my husband who is a white man showed up and he was started to show him the property and this is why people go you maybe it was just sold my and and when i got out of the car after my husband he was like oh oh you're together oh oh okay i mean it, there was somebody here earlier who may be taking the place and we were like ushered out he didn't even oh want to show God. it to us so it, it, yes it's not on the books and no i but no one now i can't prove it right right so it just shape shifts like right. when in, when sla when slavery ended it shaped like this whole system shape shifted into jim crow when you know when segregation ended this whole system shape shifted into redlining and then mass incarceration and now we have police brutality and we have health care you know it, it just shape shifts it just keeps right. moving around 
it's like it's like freaking whack-a-mole like you think you get you get one and then another one just pops up somewhere else it just changes form see see, i know we're having like a serious discussion but that kind of led me to a meme that I, i saw i'm gonna have to i have to say it about how somehow this company convinced us to go eat pizza who at a place that is covered in filth and their mascot is a rat <laughs> like oh think about that child, Chunky cas- cheese. child casino with dirty pizza yeah yes child casino <laughs> with a child casino with dirty pizza and a mascot that's a rat charles e cheese oh anyhow sorry 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 it is a, ch- it's a weird it is a child casino. <laughs> yeah it, it's and i loved it loved it i know but, but yeah. just thinking back to a little bit <laughs> shifting back into this conversation about redlining, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually um, talking to someone recently and they were talking about living in a good neighborhood and they were like, yeah, so I live in a good neighborhood. I used to live in a, re- like I grew up in a really good neighborhood, um, but now I live in a more more n- mixed neighborhood. It's a little sketchy, a little shady. And I had to, I like, you know, the, you the power of Christ you. compelled me, of course, <laughs> the power of Christ compelled me to say, and I, and I said it nicely because I, it was a, it was a, a colleague. And I said, I just want to shift your language a little bit. When you say good, often we're using what we call coded language. And mm-hmm. I had to use all my good college words, um, college inflection, not, not just the words we're using coded language because when you say good is the neighborhood you talking about mostly or predominantly white. And they looked at, looked at me, kind of looked around and I was like, and when you say um, sketchy or uh, mixed or whatever, are you talking about a predominantly black neighborhood, right? So then we started to talk about not just redlining, but then also other things that redlining does. I did shift their language, but we also started to talk about other things that redlining does. So when we talk about things like a food desert, a food desert is a place that doesn't have a grocery store within, I think, one to two miles in walking distance, Mm -hmm. right? Or public places for play, things like that, fresh foods, um, things like that. So I grew, I, I lived in, I actually did a, a project in grad school mapping, um, my neighborhood as a, as, as a food desert, um, because there wasn't a grocery store in walking distance for 10 years and not then people who are often, um, poor and impoverished don't always have grocery stores and don't, or also don't often have cars. So then mm-hmm. that kind of leads into the other thing that you were talking about when we're talking about redlining, then we have to talk about healthcare because if you don't own a car and you can't get to fresh food and your neighborhood is littered with Chinese stores and I don't, I'm not at all picking on, um, uh, Asian cuisine, but pizza stores, liquor stores, and things like that, then you're often eating at those places. And then you have hypertension, high blood pressure, all of these things. So not to mention the cost of food is more expensive if you can't buy fresh groceries. Uh, I, if you go to a corner store and try to buy uh, one tomato, it's going to cost you $2. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's going to be so much more money. And it seems like a bargain because you're only getting that one tomato and you're only spending $2 when you could get a whole um, you know, thing of tomatoes for $2, that kind of thing. And then we have to talk about education because there's a ton of new studies coming out that talk about how malnutrition and high levels of stress for young children can cause developmental delays and low mm-hmm. test scores. And then we have to talk about the fact that wait, well, wait, wait, our education go, system. So going to say, go ahead. I was going to say, if we're talking about redlining, how property taxes fund schools. Property and values fund in, schools. If you and live if you live in, in an a, impoverished neighborhood, then the schools in that neighborhood are also going to be low income. Not going to be as right? good. You're not going to so, get a new iPad for your child. Yep. Then so you're going to talk, talk about, about all of these things yep. that this go what into one another. So, then, yep. uh, so, so I, go ahead. The gaps are still present alive and well today, and they are probably in every case that we just named worse than they were during Dr. King's day. And I think that's really important to remember. It's not that this stuff has like gotten mildly better and we're, we're closer to progress. No, we are worse off in many ways than Dr. King was. Of course, yes, we have the Voting Rights Act. Of course, yes, you can't legally mm, But do we with voting? But do we? When we have people, when we have people in black neighborhoods- trying to take, I, take away voting. Now you can't right, give yeah. food to people who are in line to vote. You have people in black neighborhoods in the South standing in line for eight hours to vote. You still have functional voter discrimination. You have 
de facto voter discrimination, right? You have de facto medical discrimination. You have de facto banking discrimination. We have systems like credit that discriminate against people of color. So it's all of it. It's all of it. Dr. King was right. He's more right now than he was then. And go and read all of his stuff if you're gonna talk, if you're gonna use any of the things that he says, you have to read all more into him than just, I have a dream that was one speech. And one of the things that he said that I didn't pull a quote for is that he said that he, he one of the, his thoughts processes towards the end, toward closer to the end of his life, although he did not think it was the end of his life because he was assassinated, was that the way that he approached the movement could have been, uh, maybe he was integrating black people into a burning house, is a quote from Martin oh, Luther dang. King. Oh, dang. In that, wow. in that integra- and so one of the things, I, I went to go see a play called Betty Shabazz versus The Nation Off-Broadway, and one of the parts of the play was uh, Malcolm and Martin used to have these alleged secret meetings and their ideologies were actually uh, coming together a lot more um, after Malcolm's trip to Mecca and he came back he, he saw King's nonviolence and then he also and then King saw his you know way of being able to talk about different things in a more poignant way so did he uh, integrate people of color uh, black people into a burning house was, wow. was the end of segregation the best thing that ever happened to black people and you so can, he you didn't can reach he doubted out to himself a, wow oh, absolutely. i didn't know that yeah and you can reach out to a lot of black activists who will say segregation didn't do much for us i mean the mm-hmm. end of segregation didn't do much for us yeah so so but i want to make sure to go back to that the right is the language of the unheard and read the larger quote because i think it's really important in this time so you know we're talking about if we're talking about communities who have had needs unmet for decades and i actually watch interviews i watched an interview during the floyd riots of or, or someone was videotaping three generations of people of color living in the same neighborhood saying my generation fought for this it didn't happen his generation fought for this it didn't happen you need to keep fighting but i know you want to give up and i i know it's really hard but you know, like, but it just really sank in like, oh my God, these, these problems have been going on for so long and white America has not been attentive. Yeah. We've been aware, but we've not been attentive to these issues. But Dr. King, so he was asked if he would condemn riots. And this is really interesting. Um, so he said, it is not enough for me to stand before you tonight and condemn riots. It would be morally irresponsible for me to do that without at the same time condemning the contingent intolerable conditions that exist in our society. These conditions are the things that cause individuals to feel that they have no other alternative than to engage in violent rebellions to get attention. And I must say tonight that a a riot is the language of the unheard. So when you see riots in the street, like don't think about people misbehaving or being naughty. Think about people who are losing hope, who have no other way to get their voices heard. Think about people grieving publicly. Think about people trying to convey that they are desperate. That's It's desperation. It's not meanness. It's not vagrancy. It's not criminal behavior. It's desperation and it's grief. And I think when you can reframe that for yourself, I mean, as a white, I'm speaking mostly to white people, of course, right now, if we can reframe that and in interpreting what these what these things mean, what these public displays mean, we'd be a lot more likely to get involved because that's our neighbor who's in pain versus someone who needs to be quelled and stamped out and and sit down and behave, right? Well, and one of the things I would say too is not not just your neighbor, right? Just because, and one of the one of the things I, I say poignantly, and, and when I'm doing workshops, I call it the snow day scenario, right? If you've had a child and a school calls a snow day, um, and you look out your window and you don't see any snow, you're like, why do they call this snow day? This is ridiculous. But when a school calls a snow day, they have to call the snow day for the child who lives the farthest, who would have the hardest time getting to school. Interesting. And, and I use that scenario to say, just because you don't see it, doesn't mean it's not happening to someone. And yeah. then just because you don't see it, doesn't mean it won't happen to you next. Yeah. It may be coming your way. So when we really think about that, I think we have to think about it as white supremacy, racism, these things are hurting white people too. And not in a, you don't get to be best friends with a black person if you're racist sort of way, but like, no, like this is a distraction from you, from from 
real problems that are actually happening. And I think that's, it's really, in, we really should be paying attention. So when we think, one of the things you said, you talked a little bit about Black Lives Matter um, before, and it made me think about when people say all lives matter, because I have, I have had somebody literally write, um, I had a sign up that said Black Lives Matter, and somebody said all lives matter. If all lives matter was a real group and not just a figurehead of conversation, mm. they would be the busiest yeah um, organization and group because they would care for all people all the they time would. they'd be at every march yep. if all lives matter why are you why aren't you out here with us yeah like, where's your logo <laughs> right where, where's your mission statement do something where's your nonprofit status yeah so i i, I just i, I if you're going to quote Dr. King, quote all of him, read his ideologies. Otherwise you yeah. may be saying something that you don't actually agree with or that you don't know enough about um, and using one speech out of and all of the things that he said. And you might actually be doing damage without even realizing it by misquoting him. So don't be a toothpick person. Yeah, don't don't cherry pick, take the <laughs> don't whole tree. Take the whole take, tree. Go sit under the shade. Um, so I wanted to make sure that we actually noted to you all about our schedule and Mel will share a little bit about where we are because we've been doing this, I think now for nine episodes, nine episodes. Yep. This is our pilot season. We have one more episode coming your way next week and then we're going to take a break till spring. We're both moving. So we need a little time settle in and, uh, but don't, we don't have really again, cause it's, it's not fun. It's Moving not that a fun. lot of work, actually. No. Uh, but um, we've really enjoyed this time with you all. Thank you so much for being with us and joining us. And please be in touch if you've got questions, episode ideas. If you do this kind of work, you want to be on the show, perhaps, possibly. Yes. We, we would love to talk to you. We, we just, you know, we two people hanging guests. out. Our guests had fun, I hope. I hope yeah. so. We wear comfy clothes. You know, we hydrate. Um, and we try to be good conversation partners. So yes, we will be coming to you in the spring. We, we do have one last episode, so we'll be around. And you can also yeah. always listen to our podcast, um, re-listen to some of the episodes if you didn't start listening in until the middle of the season. Yep. Um, we are on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, Facebook, I believe. Twitter, Twitter, Google, Google. something else. Uh, we're all, a lot of places. We're we, just got a, we got a TikTok. We don't we do. post a little bit, but we're, we got a TikTok. <laughs> Engage with us. So we wanted to yeah. share that with you all um, because we have uh, one last episode before we, uh, you know, the holidays are coming. All of them, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Christmas, I almost forgot Christmas, um, and then the New Year's in this yeah. holiday season. Have you started listening to Christmas music yet? Are you a Christmas music person? Um, this year... I don't know. I feel like it's been harder for me to get in the Christmas spirit this year for mm. some reason. Last year, I feel like I needed the joy because of the panini and I was like really having a rough time. And this year I'm like, okay, uh, we did get our tree already. Um, is it decorated? I, it is. Head to toe. Say it's not one of those yeah. Charlie bound trees where it's just sitting there with oh, that one ornament. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's decorated. And my dogs keep trying to eat the ornaments of it. Uh, but I will say I was in Walmart the other day. I don't care to shop in Walmart very often, but they were playing really terrible Christmas music. Like I just had like the a blaring headache after it, and I was like, you know, Christmas music is a little bit overrated. I will say if you are usually listening to very what they call traditional, but I'm going to say white Christmas music, um, try your hand at um, on Pandora, a soulful Christmas because Ooh. it is. It's good. It's great. I love it. That's the kind of Christmas music I listen to. Um, I I, ce I don't celebrate Christmas. I celebrate Hanukkah and Kwanzaa. Um, and Hanukkah happened um, the weekend after Thanksgiving. Um, and Kwanzaa happens the week after Christmas. Nice. I usually celebrate all of them. My mom celebrates Christmas, so I'm usually around. But um, we do more uh, Hanukkah and Kwanzaa up in this piece. And I celebrate uh, winter solstice. There you go. Winter yeah. solstice. And winter the Festivus. For the rest mm -hmm. of us, no. Um, <laughs> so celebrating and, and, and getting in the spirit and whatever the mood is and New Year's and things like that. Yeah. So. It's going to be fun. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, one more episode next week is going to be about, I believe it's about decentering whiteness, which will be a good challenge for me because I, we haven't talked about that particular topic before, I think, Taishal, and I'm really excited to talk to you about that. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is. And I think, I, I mean, I run a book club called, called Decentering Whiteness. So we can you talk do? about that. Maybe I'll bring you know, some of I'm our, right. uh, um, well, maybe we'll bring our producers on if they're around because they both are part of my book club. That'd be awesome. Um, yeah, we should do some that. Some of the books we read. Yeah, we got to get, you got to actually see their faces. Um, but we've had so much fun with you. We can't wait till next week. And yeah. then uh, planning for things in the spring. If you do want to be on the show, let us know. We want to bring mm. in all people. I have so many guests that I want to bring on. And I, I also want to hear from you all because so many of you are all experts. Like one of my students who's in medical school was like, I listened to all eight. I think at that point it was like seven or eight episodes in the car the other day. Yay. I had somebody t- had somebody text me, a friend of ours, the one who, who brought us together as friends, text me and was and like sent me laughing emojis and he was like the story you told and i was like what are you talking about he's like i was listening to your podcast i was like well you just text me randomly it was like the story i heard you say you're so funny and i'm like i don't know what you're talking about bro um but uh you know um so uh if you want to be on the show and you want to um come have some good conversation with us and drink water and tea and, and, Mm -hmm. and be here do that so and we'll be when we come back next week we had an audience question that we really wanted to get to today but our conversation went over and we'll talk about it next week um, i think i, I think that's a good center idea yeah whiteness yeah um yeah awesome. any any last words mel before we end tonight i just want to thank you taishal i've just i feel this like overwhelming gratitude for you and for your your knowledge and your your willingness to share from your experience and everything you are you know and the fact that you do this during the day for work and then also you want to come off you know after work and spend time with me still doing this work is i was talking at work today and i was telling them i was like yeah you know because i do a podcast and they were like oh give it to me i was like mm, not ready for that <laughs> i'm not ready for that yet maybe maybe if we make it past this season or i stay at this job maybe we're trying and not to I be t- too scandalous but <laughs> we, we're not but then people will be calling me yeah anyway um but anyway I'll, I'm, just, it'll be I'm thankful for you. you i'm thankful for you you're just amazing and, and your passion is awesome for this work and you've taught me so much so I'm so so happy to have a, a comrade, accomplice, partner in crime in this work. Um, you know, I'm gonna sign off on your good white person bill. No, I'm just joking. I, I can't do that. But but <laughs> I, but uh, you know, to be able it, to appreciate it. <laughs> no, but to be able to um, engage with someone authentically and not feeling like I need to be someone else because so many people of color don't have that right. They choose not to engage with white people because they don't feel like they get to do so authentically learn from joke with all of those things but we'll, we'll we have to continue and continue this gus fest next oh week as our last episode is a part of that that is the biggest compliment you could have paid me is that you could be yourself around me that means a oh. lot and i'm glad thank you yeah awesome oh well, until next time y'all we will see you back next tuesday at 8 est yep and we'll talk to you then take it easy Bye. Oh,